Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Nathan Schmidt, who is a psychiatric nurse at the Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute in Seattle, Washington. This dude is using ketamine to help people through assisted psychotherapy, and his boss is actually the first person in America to um, get an FDA approval to use ayahuasca clinically. And they're currently doing that research now. And I hope to get her on the podcast one day. But if you are interested in how psychedelics can, through a clinical model, help people with all their bullshit, check out this episode. And if you guys want to support what I am doing, please go on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. I love you guys. Thank you guys for dancing with me. And namaste. Nathan, thank you for coming on the Myths That Make Us podcast. And I'm I'm grateful that you reached out because when I started to look into what you and your tribe are doing, it fucking blew me away and I knew I wanted you on the podcast. So in your own words, could you introduce yourself and what it is that you're working on and what you're excited to share with people? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Nathan Schmidt. I am a psych nurse practitioner. So basically, I can kind of do what a psychiatrist does. In the state of Washington, I have full prescriptive authority. And uh, I'm working at an integrative uh, medical science institute right now. And we're trying to advance psychedelic research to help those uh, suffering with various um, psychiatric illnesses, addiction, traumas, um, all these things. And what's the name of the place that you work at? It's called, I didn't come up with the name. It has a, a shorter name, but we call it the Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute or AIMS for short. Beautiful. So how did you find your way to this program? Sure. I mean, it's a long, long story of uh, different synchronicities. I've just kind of followed the path. Uh, I started out um, as an RN, just a regular floor nurse working in critical care. And I got more interested in um, psychology, psychiatry. And my wife, who happened to be a nurse practitioner, um, basically told me her path. And it seemed like an interesting field, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I was trained as a typical reductionist. Um, but, you know, in a legal fashion, of course, uh, in, any of the experiences I talk about were, were done in other countries where, where this is legal, um, but was able to experience uh, true medicine and healing. And uh, then that radically changed the way I practice and, and uh, the way I uh, continue to practice in the future. What was that first experience for you like where you had true, like where your, where what you have, what you call true medicine, what was um, your experience and how did it transform you? Sure. So I was, um, it, basically psilocybin mushrooms found their way uh, into my life. And Beautiful. at the time, I was already kind of seeking. I had started a transcendental meditation practice and just trying to get okay. quiet and, and still. You know, people would talk about meditation, uh, mindfulness, and, you know, I had an idea of what that was, but it wasn't, didn't fully sink in. And then I had, uh, had my first experience and I started having visions of, Native Americans and, and, and past like cultural wrongs and uh, just truly felt in the present for the first time at peace and 
had a total mystical experience that that just lasted and, and, and resonated out for a while. And uh, just, you know, kind of the cliche oneness and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just connection with nature. And that just set the stage of, you know, why was this not talked about in my traditional training? And, yeah. and, and then also it made sense of, of why such horrible atrocities have done to, been done to people who were aligned with this medicine and why it's, you know, can be a threat to our, you know, current systems and paradigms. And so after that first experience, what was the path that kind of brought you to where you are now? Sure. So I just kind of followed the medicine and uh, started going to psychedelic conferences and I found out about ketamine. And I was like, oh, this is interesting because it's a schedule three medicine. Uh, it has a lot of other uses, which I can talk to you more about, um, yeah. which I, I know you already know some, some of the background of it. But I, uh, I came across a, a lady named uh, Raquel Bennett in San Francisco. She's uh, quite an expert in the ketamine field and received training with her uh, about ketamine and, and had some experiential experiences. And from that, went to her conference met a doctor who was also very interested from the Seattle area and in kind of a synchronistic way, he just happened to be sitting right behind me. There were only three other people at the conferences and we kept in touch and he met this naturopath who has worked 20 years to obtain the first legal um, authorization approval to study ayahuasca in phase one clinical studies or phase one clinical trial in human subjects. Um, and she was looking to form a clinic to do this research specifically. So we came together and uh, we've been open for about eight months. So uh, we formed a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy program, which um, is basically setting the scene for further research right now. So <clears throat> I have so many questions. Um what does one have to go through in order to legally set up a clinic like this and then to be able to uh, provide this type of service? Sure. So it's it's a lot of work, you know, setting up a, a clinic, you know, just the typical business licensing and you have to get the providers together. Um, but that's, you know, that's fairly straightforward. The challenging part is is to get the actual approval from the DEA, FDA. Um, yeah. She, she actually has a beautiful link where you know, she gave a, a talk at the World Ayahuasca Conference in Spain uh, uh, this month where she outlines her journey. It's been, it's been a 20-year process and where she met Dennis McKenna and um, basically has been stewarding this forest area in the big island of their land and has been working with graduate students to study these plants. And she's drank ayahuasca with many different tribes and different areas and tried to find the key components to standardize a tea. But um, so, so, I mean, setting up, getting the clinic together is fairly straightforward, but to actually be able to try to study a uh, a schedule one substance is, you know, could take a lifetime. Yeah, so I'm fascinated. What is the research design for the ayahuasca study? Yeah, so currently right now, uh, phase one is basically just to say that it's proved that it's safe in human subjects, and you have to standardize it, and that's what makes it really hard with a substance like ayahuasca. Because um, right now we're working with MAPS. MAPS is going to be our fis- is our fiscal sponsor, um, 
but if you take a substance like MDMA, you have just one one ingredient. With ayahuasca, you know, there's oh, you know, there's yeah. ayahuasca, there's millions and ones we're not even aware of. But what she's doing is working with just two of the main components, harmine and DMT. And by studying, she took basically 15 samples from um, tribes she drank with in Brazil, Peru, and North America. And interesting enough, showed that there's a similar concentration of DMT in all the brews. Now, of course, there's tons of other additive plants and, you know, ones that we might know like 0.0002% of, like we have no idea. Um, But she's specifically working with a, a lab uh, here in Washington that can meet the DEA and FDA standards um, just with those two components. And we're trying, and then we want to use that on human subjects with IRB oversight using, you know, MAPS protocol um, to prove the safety of it um, for that. And then once phase one is done, then that opens the door for phase two trials to where it could be studied for specific indications like PTSD, addiction, depression, et cetera. This is fascinating. Okay, so I have so many questions. Um, so is this so in order for it to be studyable through the FDA, we have to standardize it and make it really clear what the chemicals we are using and what the ratios of the chemicals are. And so are you in the phase one, are we going to be giving someone a pill or is it going to be the soup? You know, like is it going to be a drink or is it going to be broken down into just these two chemicals and then orally ingested through like a pill. Yes. So it'll be broken down into, you know, two ingredients and it, I think it could be put into a pill, but you know, it'll first be standardized into a liquid. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent, I'm not a hundred percent, but it'll definitely be orally administrated. Wow. And so, um, and I can already hear a huge amount of people saying, well, there's no way that if you do it like that, you will get the same experience of drinking ayahuasca. But then the other half is clearly like, but this is the first step that must be taken in order for this to be like, if we want to help the maximum number of people, we have to get it through the system that will give it to the maximum number of people. And so I'm sure that this is something that you guys hear people bring to your attention and something that you guys have parsed through. But um, do you feel like there's something fundamentally that will be missed doing it like this? And what is the rationale that you guys have towards that type of feedback? Yeah, that's an excellent question and something where it's in the forefront of our mind. Um, we even posed this. We were at um, the MAPS training for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy learning their model, which um, we'll be using for this, this process. But, you know, it's basically honoring, um, you know, the millennium of uh, use in, in all these yeah. tribes and, and not just, you know, cultural appropriations brought up a lot. And, you know, sure. all, with any botanical medicine, it's the synergy of many compounds. But we really feel like this is just a, a standard step. So, um I still, even though it's two components, really fine tuning that that process. Um, I also um, drink ayahuasca regularly with the Santo Daimi, which is a, a yeah. legal um, opportunity, Church, yeah, within the states. So that also informs a lot of of my practices. And uh, Leanna Standish, the the naturopath I work with, she you know she's drank 
and worked with these tribes. So we're really trying to be in communion and conversation. And I think just being open to feedback, um, cause you know, we're trying to figure it out too, but it seems to be, unfortunately you have to spend millions of dollars to convince people in the States, basically in the, in the religion of the States science that what, what right. people have known for millions of years, these indigenous people actually know what they're talking about. What has been the overall um, response that you have gotten when you share this work with people? Like, what is the average response that you get? Average response is people are blown away and excited and, you know, did, wouldn't think it was possible. I mean, we were talking to Rick Doblin about it when we went to the MAPS training and he posed that exact question you said, you know, about honoring honoring the tradition and just the two components. And But ultimately, most people, and ourselves included, come to the same conclusion that this seems to be the only way to do it because, unfortunately, as advanced as we are in some ways in this country, um, people want to see the data. They want to see evidence. Um, so it's, it's just proving the safety first, and then I feel like that'll open the door later for these nuances and variations um, that are in, you know, traditional brews. So a curious thing that comes up is, um, will there be a specific dieta that will be attached to this that will, that you'll be giving to participants? Um, I don't know much about the technical nutritional, um, implications of what it is in the ayahuasca that we need to have that specific diet beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I also understand that there are aspects of the diet that are less quote unquote nutritionally based and more just kind of about the tradition yeah. around honoring ayahuasca. Um, will there be a dieta before? And if so, um, do you guys have an idea of what that would look like? You know, that's a great question. We haven't even, we haven't even got to that point yet. Right now it's just trying to it's been finding the facility that can can do this and meet the FDA, FDA uh, DEA, FDA standards. And then um, Leanna has talked about, you know, bringing in a traditional shaman, potentially uh, a dieta. That's that's a great that's a great thought. Because um, what's interesting is with the Santo Daime that I drink with, though, it's based off of Brazilian uh, indigenous combined with some Christianity components they actually right. don't have a specific diet. And if you look at the Brazilians, they'll roll into town and eating, you know, steak and, you know, eating food all the way up to, you know, interesting to, to interesting, drinking. Yeah. So, 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 you know, there's, there's different, there's different thoughts on that uh, of how, hmm. how, how important that is. But I know from the Peruvian, uh, like Shipibo standpoints, they're always dieta, dieta, dieta. That makes a, a huge, sure. a huge difference. So yeah, it, it just shows the complexity of, of this uh, topic because it's not just, you know, taking MDMA, like, like one, one component it, it's in it, it. It's the plants, it's, it's the ingredients, but it's also, you know, the ritual, it's the container, it's the, you know, the song. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's yeah, a, it's a big topic. And then the next thing that comes up that I think is interesting is, is there going to be some standardized, interpretation of what ikaros are used and will ikaros be used because i think that that's such a intricate and interesting part of the whole ritual i absolutely absolutely agree in some way shape or form there will absolutely be some some form of sound healing um being informed by the indigenous 
and, and, and various traditions that utilize this, as well as proper set setting, container. Um, these are all huge components that, you know, that we'll have to bring in to really, you know, show the effect. But yeah, right now we're just at sort of ground level. Like, can we standardize this into, you know, just taking the two components in a safe way that the DA and FDA will allow? Yeah, um, so it looks like that all is happening. We found the site. Um, we have the clinic. We have the resources. We have the clinicians. Um, unfortunately, the biggest ch hurdle right now is just getting um, the funding. Um, it's it's such 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 a hurdle to to jump over. And when that's set up, then I think really just bringing a lot of people to the table and having the conversations like we're having right now is, you know, how can this how can we take these ancient, you know, tribal ways of doing things and, and, and do it respectfully uh, within a clinical uh, setting? Yeah. And, you know, I can hear the people who are a cynic and who, you know, are in fear and how they see, how they could see this as something that's terrible. Yes. But I genuinely like, Ayahuasca seems to be one of those things that if you have malintent, whether or not it's conscious or unconscious, if you are an active practitioner of the medicine, it just seems hard to imagine that it would go unnoticed by ayahuasca itself. And that the people who are like, I'm glad that the people who are working on this are active practitioners because it seems like it's going to be really hard to move in ways that aren't at the very least internally ethical and depending on what your understanding of the universe is universally ethical, it's just going to make your experiences with ayahuasca terrible. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it's yes. like a self-regulating function, which, um, it gives me faith. I, you know, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, you, you were talking about sort of the spiritual lens maybe that I, I see all this and, and it does feel like, you know, we work for the plants, you know, they, they, they right. have an agenda and then they, they work through us. Um, but if you did not have the proper intent and, and you are continuing to be a practitioner, it, <laughs> it, you would get just exposed. Yeah. It, it, it would fall apart. You, you'd be torn down. And I, I feel like there's a bigger, a bigger agenda of these plants to, to help create homeostasis that we're sort of out of at this point. And we're For merely sure. conduits. Uh, it, it, I feel like these plants chose us or, you know, chose me, chose the right. team. Um, it was nothing I sought out after. It was just personal healing. And and I've just kind of followed the path. And, and it's like, here I am. And, and I totally get, you know, what all the cynics, um, you know, might say. Um, but I do agree with you with that self-regulating uh, mechanism um, to where I feel like th this is this is what needs to happen. And if not, it would not be presenting itself in this way. Absolutely. And what do you see the timeline for phase one looking like? Yeah, that's a good question. I, a lot of that just depends on, you know, how quickly we can, can raise, uh, you know, appropriate funds. Um, but exactly, but we have all the, we have the, the clinic, the setup. Um, yeah, every, everything necessary. It, it's, it's basically just a funding issue at this point. 
Beautiful. Well, I've got faith that the more that you guys talk about it, the more that it's going to get the funding that it needs, because it's only going to take a couple of people who have more means than they need to do ayahuasca once or twice and for them to be like, oh, fuck. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm honestly not worried about that. Um, I would like to kind of switch gears and talk about um, what has been your personal path when it comes to uh, psychotherapeutic assisted um, ketamine use. Yeah. Like, how did that start? And I'm really curious, like, what your clinical observations are so far and what your experience is. Yeah. So um, to kind of touch on kind of what I set the stage for earlier, um, it's just really disenchanted with the, the uh, current biochemical, biomedical model where we see these as chemical imbalances in people, um, these psychological issues. And basically, there's a magic pill that you're going to take. And it's going to undo a horrible childhood or it's going to instant, you know, change your perspective or something like that, which, you know, it, it, it doesn't. So I pursued ketamine specifically um, because I heard it had some, some psychedelic qualities and I went to psychedelic science and got hooked up with this Raquel Bennett. And her big philosophy is if you're providing this kind of treatment, if you're able to, it's best to experience it first. Because for sure, it's very hard to be sensitive to somebody in that space if you've never experienced it yourself. And I feel like you, you sure. could do more harm than good. So my journey was to fly to San Francisco and take part in it multiple times and experience it in different routes uh, and different dosages to, to fully know, know the medicine. And when I did that, I was like, holy shit, this has profound uh, potential uh, to, to heal and I can use this now and it's legal. So after doing that, I started doing it in a private practice setting um, and was getting some results, but I realized I needed a full team. So right. after getting that team together here at Ames, um, we're providing it in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that we're basically in using the MAPS model and inform. Uh, we think it's very important for people to have proper intakes, preparations, and then proper integration follow-up sessions after the medicine a big problem in the field is that and, and i'm not here to like you know talk trash about anesthesiologists who are providing it in this fashion i think providing in this fashion is better than no treatment but to where people are not properly screened and they're basically giving ketamine in a sterile sense where there's not proper support follow-up and it's just you hook people up to an IV pump in a sterile room, you know, basically looking at it more in a biochemical model and then just cutting right. them loose. I, I feel like that's reckless. I feel like you, you, bring, you end up bringing up a lot of unconscious material. And For sure. It's people operating in the old paradigm where it's, I just give you the thing mm -hmm. and it does the thing. And then I'm in no way like a part of the transformation. Yeah, I, I think it's just, it's remnants of the old model and it's probably coming from people who haven't done it themselves. And I do think that what you said earlier is a great um, guiding light, which is if you're going to help someone through an altered state experience, you have to know the territory, you know? Precisely. So I'm curious specifically, um, I love hearing people who do clinical work, like what they are experiencing in person? Like what are the patterns that you're witnessing in person? Like not the textbooks. Yes. Like what are, like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is what are some of the common 
problems that you see people come in with? Mm-hmm. What are some of the archetypical like self stories that people start with? What are some of the archetypical experiences that people go through? Um, are there common hurdles that you see people run into afterwards? I know that that's a lot I just mm-hmm. threw at you, but that's kind of what I'm curious about. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So the typical person who comes into me has tried the old model and it, it's not working for them. They've tried multiple medications. They're at a point in their life where they're dissatisfied, uh, pretty typically feeling suicidal, and um, they're looking for something different. Um, a lot of people have read Michael Pollan's book that's created interest. Interesting. Yeah. So as far as the experience goes, uh, what, I, what I see it doing for people is it provides a mystical experience that they've never had. Um, a lot of people are stuck in their head, their small sense of self, and by dissociating from their body and from their typical thought patterns into more kind of a waking dream state where that inner judge is quieted and um, they're able to experience consciousness in a new way that they've never experienced before. And then when they come back into their bodies, they're more aware of their, when their thought patterns come back on because ketamine is not a magic bullet. It, it, it's, it's, it's a catalyst for change. It's an interrupter. Uh, and th- right. so when that, the, that judge comes back online, they're like, oh, and they start noticing um, more. They start feeling more. And then a lot of times, it's not just what happens during the medicine experiences. Afterwards, they start, they're a little more raw. They're more vulnerable. More memories start coming through. Past experiences start coming through. And they get this sort of reboot um, that then gives them more capacity to do the work that it's actually needs to be done. Are there archetypical um, experience slash trip reports that you are seeing that people come back with, or is it very um, idiosyncratic and subjective to each person? It seems quite universal to me. I mean, sometimes people see colors, sometimes it's black and white, but they, most people universally get a sense that it's much bigger than them, that they're just a a piece of the, of the whole. Um, some people see entities or they feel the presence of loved ones. Um, other commonalities. Um, let me think about that for a moment. (laughs) Basically that, also a big reassurance that they're they're doing okay that they're where they're supposed mm. to be that they need yeah. you know more self-love and compassion and uh, sometimes people will a lot of nature stuff too sometimes it'll it'll bring a visual imagery from maybe where they're born or or some people even almost feel like it can bring back past lives or past memories one person had a nef- had an experience where they had drowned and almost died and they felt like the ketamine put them in that same space. So a sense of deja vu, like they'd been there mm. before, but then it's very hard to articulate um, once they come out. What is the physical environment that you um, give this intervention to people? Like, what does it look like and feel like? Sure. So it looks a lot like the way MAPS would set it up with their MDMA cool. or how yeah. Hefter would use for um, psilocybin. We have a room with no windows. It's dark, um, but we have it decorated very nicely with photos of nature. Beautiful. We have, yeah. uh, you know, low lighting. We we have a, a playlist that we have carefully worked through and crafted to make sure it has no words 
and that it has a different range of uh, tracks intensity yeah, yeah. To, to elicit different emotions we use the mindfolds designed by alex gray to uh the people can open their eyes but it creates a darkness but also um encourage sort of encourages people to go more inward uh we're they're in comfortable recliners and we always have someone present in the room at all times to provide grounding a hand to hold maybe some gentle pressure um and reassurance if at some point someone becomes frightened or or scared and, and that's um that's paying getting that setting very tight seems to be a huge part of the healing process that's beautiful. I could not agree more with that type of setting. Um, what are some of the common, or I guess, what do you see in the integration work? Like, what are kind of the patterns and the archetypes that you're seeing with people after they have their experience with ketamine? Mm. Yeah, so sometimes it's it's challenging for people, but usually a sense that their old ways and patterns aren't, aren't working and, and sort of an urgency to try to, to chip away at, at those. So we just, in the spirit of the MAPS model, um, encourage people to trust their inner healing wisdom and that it's going right. to be a process. So it's not always linear. You know, sometimes people feel worse before they feel better. Sometimes yeah. it brings up like, hey, maybe my relationship isn't working out for me. Or uh, maybe I, I this job is, is something I need to look at and see if it's really serving me. Um, so usually kind of a sense of, Oh, you know, that double-edged sword. Now that I know, what, what am I going to do about it? So we, we just try to really help people make the time to look at these things and then su- support them through it. But also a sense of em- empowerment that, that, that they can do this or that they do have the capacity um, to work through things is what I'm seeing for folks. <clears throat> so now here's where I think it's going to get interesting. Um, so a part of me knows that I want to go get a PhD so I can do clinical work because I see clinical work as the ultimate testing ground for what my perception of the psyche and what reality is because you know I've read hundreds of books and I can keep reading hundreds of books but it is nothing compared to the felt sense experience of being in the clinic and so I'm curious what was your mental framework for, you know, healing and psychology before you started clinical work. And um, then the questions I'm going to start to ask is, how has it transformed? Sure. So the mental framework going into school was these poor people have chemical imbalances and what a rewarding career to go and help people correct that. Kind of like insulin is for diabetes because I have an uncle, he has schizophrenia and, uh, he was put on medication, which, you know, we can talk, we can discuss further, but it has made some difference in his life. Um, and then there's been other people in the family. So I was like, this, this looks like a rewarding field to go into. Um, but after, while I was in school, I worked in a psych emergency room seeing, you know, horrible things, horrible trauma, basically people uh, at the end of their rope. And then by working with medicines and reading lots of books and different philosophies. Uh, my, my sense now is that there's a huge spiritual component to me- yeah. mental health because we're, we're spiritual beings. And I like Gabor Mate's work a lot. It informs a lot yeah. of where I'm at in that all this you can is rooted in early childhood development. You know, the world, uh, there's a good quote. It's like, um, uh, 
the world creates the mm-hmm. mind and the mind creates the world. And you need good nurturing foundation to solidify good neuronal connections and trust. And you need a nurturing parent, um, which a lot of people don't get. And those early childhood traumas really shape us. And, and if you have trauma, there's a, there's a good quote uh, that, that Gabor Mate uh, I heard in one of his last talks, it was that trauma is anything that keeps people from being their authentic self in the present moment. So it creates like a disconnection. Damn, that's good. It's, I know it's damn good. And he, and he, and there's four outline disconnections that are common in our culture, disconnection from self, dis- disconnection from others, nature and our job. And basically I see, um, the work I do now in a bigger spiritual sense is to connect people with their, their sense of self. Uh, it, it's al- almost, um, like a soul retrieval. I, I feel like we're born knowing and it's everything we seek is what we are. And to heal that trauma, people have to heal themselves and, and reconnect with that healing intelligence. What has been your experience or what was your experience when you felt like you reconnected to that soul mm. for you personally? Sure. It was... Uh, it, it was like a, it was coming home basically. Um, it, it was basically realizing that a lot of the things I'd been told weren't true. It was a, a questioning, um, and, and more or less like slowly connecting back to that child sense of trusting myself, connecting with my own intuition, um, just not worrying so much, be, being in the moment, um, making time to play an instrument or take a walk outside um, and, and realizing too just how programmed programmed we are there's there's a book I read every year it's called the four agreements and it yep. and, and it talk so basically I see it you know kids you look at a kid uh, they're just smiling they're happy they're playing they're free they're not they haven't learned to judge themselves. They haven't learned to be so hard on themselves. Their reality has not been limited. The whole, everything is wide open for them. And so the medicines for me just opened up all the possibilities and made me think, well, nobody really knows anything, including myself. And, and from that, it made the world magical again. It was like becoming a child again. So here's an interesting thing that I'd like to see what you think. Um, it seems to be, so um, I'm really heavily influenced by evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And so I'm always thinking about why did this mechanism of the psyche evolve? Like, what did it evolve? Like, how, why was it adaptive? And it seems like the internal judge is something that is psychologically adaptive when you are in a small contained group of 100 to 150 people and you are trying to internalize what the social game is and how you have to be to not be exiled. Mm. And that when you're in the proper container, which is a hundred thousand years ago, a group of your tribe, a hundred, 250 people, it is damn useful to have an internal judge that helps you see what the game is, what the rules of the game are and how you need to be to fit into that group. It seems that the internal judge is completely fucked right now because we have access to a group of people that's in the billions 
and there's all these sub-tribal games, and our internal judge is comparing us to the z- 0.00001% of the outliers in beauty and intelligence and strength and ambition and it's fucking with us. But I think that it's coming from a place where it was adaptive. Um, what is your perception on what the internal judge is and how it, how and why it is? Yeah, uh, I agree a hundred percent. Um, there's a book I read. I'm trying to remember the name. It's, it's by this, uh, Buddhist psychologist. He wrote a book talking about, it was really important. It's really important back in those times in the small tribes to know the difference between a stick and a snake. That was, life or death. So we have this inbuilt negativity bias and it serves us and is there to protect us. But now it's like, you know, you can have 10 wonderful things happen in a day. And it's that one shitty thing that that's going to flavor the whole, you're going to focus on that. Um, So what helped us survive before now is, is, is a challenge. So I mean, I feel like we're in the midst of some sort of uh, of, of, of evolution, but there's horrible, you know, huge challenges now and that, that we're reacting like it's like everything is a snake. Right. Um, right. And, and it's, and, and it's a, it's a huge, huge challenge. What is your um, kind of framework or conception of what the psyche is? Like, what is the, what are the parts of the human psyche that you find is a useful framework for your work? Hmm. You know, my favorite is, is basically Buddhist psychology with sort of the universal mind and then the historical mind. And that we're sort of a part of everything, uh, like a small, a small droplet in the whole. Um, but then there's also the small, uh, sense of self, like the reducing valve. And um, I, I think, you know, both both have to exist together. Yeah, there's this quote, and it's, um, I am both a speck of dust and the center of the universe. Yes. You know, and um, yeah, it sounds like this is a way of talking about what the left and the right hemisphere do that the universal mind would be the right hemisphere, which is trying to take in the holistic, the entirety, and the left hemisphere is trying to break things down into their parts. You know, it's the analytical part. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just kind of flesh out for people what you see as the universal mind and what you see as the historical mind? Sure. So the universal mind, I would see, as whatever it is that we were before we were born into these bodies, it's it's sort of unbound consciousness that we're all a part of almost like a infinite fractal and the same energy translucent force that's in a tree that's in the sky that makes the plants grow, makes me move. And if I was to look you right in the eye, the same, same spirit energy that is everything is looking right back at me and we're, we're all a part of it. And then, you know, the individual, psyche is just it just happens to be encapsulated um in the body and then we have this reducing valve this 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 mind that this smaller sense of self that makes us feel like that we're it 
but that that almost has to kind of go offline slightly or at least be quieted to realize that we're every I, I guess a good analogy would be like we're kind of the waves and each wave thinks that you know they're going to last forever <laughs> and they're so unique yeah. but then slowly the freeing part is when you realize that ultimately you're water you are the you're, ocean yeah yeah it's hard to articulate no but i completely know what you mean it's like uh so this brings up some interesting questions um so i think from an experiential standpoint the historical mind i think is experienced by most people as the activation of the default mode network. It's the part where they have their sense of self, the part of them that reacts when they hear their name, you know, it's their personal histories, their memories. And that when you enter something like a flow state or you do ketamine, you know, the default mode network deactivates. And there are so many other things happening in the mind there is so much more information processing happening in the mind other than the default mode network that you can experience something in those flow states that feels like this universal mind. Um, but my, my conception of this is that the true universal mind, like completely unbounded consciousness, is something that isn't experientiable because in order for us to experience we have to reduce the infinite to some level of the finite. And that my personal conception right now is that when the body dies, I do think that there is this energy that passes on that's infinite, but that there isn't, it's so fundamental, it will be so fundamentally different experientially from what we consider to be experience slash consciousness that we wouldn't even be able to call it experience. I guess what I'm trying to get to is, do you think that unbounded consciousness is something that can be experienced once the body dies? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I feel like it's that unbounded consciousness that we ultimately are, but by being unbound, we can't, we can't remember it. Um, and that it's sort of the intermediary uh, phase before we take on our next form. Because I feel like nothing, there is no birth, there is no death. Uh, because something can't come from nothing, and nothing can't come from something. It all is a continuum. It's all transformation. And in Buddhism, they call like nirvana basically the cessation of any thoughts, concepts, ideals. Like that's complete freedom. And I feel like. To act, if you're actually in that unbound, infinite state, um, it's 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 ineffable, it's indescribable, it's unfathomable. Um, and what you touched on by being that small, by being embodied in something, that's the only way you can sort of even fathom what it is. And if you know what it is, then you're not fully in it. Right. It's like that quote from the Tao Te Ching, and it's um. He who speaks the Tao does not know the Tao. <laughs> That's it. And it's just like, boom, like, fuck. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's it's such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting experience for me because I'm so deeply, egoically attached to my ability to articulate mm -hmm. that the, 
there are just fundamental experiences that I have experienced that I know are beyond the pale of language and will always be. And it's like, it's always a challenge for me to explain a psychedelic experience to someone who hasn't done it because I don't want to be the douche and say, well, you just have to do it or else, you know, like I can't explain it to you. So I, I genuinely try my best to explain it. And it's just, it's such a weird thing. But then you meet someone and they might not even speak your language, but they're doing Wachuma with you. Mm. And you can just look them in the eye and be like, you are a sister. <laughs> That's it. You are a brother in a way that like, I could talk to someone for, you know, eight years. And if they've never done a psychedelic, it's just, it's like, have you seen the movie Village? No, I haven't. It's uh, by M. Night Shyamalan and it's good. I really enjoy it. But because you haven't seen it, I can't explain what I'm about to explain without giving you a spoiler. So never mind. Okay. <laughs> so going forward, what's your, um, what is your personal goal? Like, what is it that you hope to achieve in your lifetime? Sure. So I guess just on the fundamental level, I'm just trying to be a good person and love fully. Um, I like Jack Kornfield a lot. And he says, you know, at the end of this lifetime, yeah. it's not how much you've accumulated. It's not, you know, your experience. I mean, yeah, it's, it's cool that I might have the opportunity to do ayahuasca research. It's cool that I'm doing all these things. But ultimately, when I'm on my deathbed, what am I going to say? Um, and I think I want it to be, you know, that I loved fully, that, you know, that I was present for my loved ones. Um, so, so that's kind of this, just the basic fundamental, but if, if we're looking more in a historical sense, um, professionally, I, I feel like my mission, I, I feel like I've give, been given a certain amount of privilege and it's by no mistake. It's by no coincidence. I am where I am right now. Um, is that, just to advance, advance the research, provide better healing for people to where people don't have to risk their freedom. People don't have to risk their safety, um, to, to, to get healing. So I would like when I die for the standard of healing for trauma, addiction, depression, anxiety to be far better than it was when I was, um, you know, a young man. For people who are listening who feel like they might have um, depression or thoughts of killing themselves or bipolar disorder or um, anything along those lines, and they haven't done psychedelics, um, what would be your guiding information to them? Sure. I think a key point is that this is not for everyone. Um, there's if people have had like truly manic episodes or if they hear voices or are already experiencing a reality that's that they're kind of drowning in, that they don't feel really grounded in, if you're already wide open, you don't want to do something that's going to blow you more open. Um, there's, there's other forms and ways to, to experience healing, but that this is a, this is a tool for, for certain, for certain people. Um, but yeah, what would I say specifically to them? Um, I just, th I think it's important to get quiet. I think it's important to try to listen to yourself and, and, and to try to question, you know, the mainstream forms of healing, uh, qu question, you know, what's right for you. Um, and another, you know, a big thing too, is just the diet, what, what we're putting in our mouths, gut 
gut health is connected to brain health. I, th- I think, you know, you can do the psychedelic, you can have these big experiences, but if you're not eating well, if you're not connecting to loved ones, if you're not getting out, um, you know, it's only going to have, have so much, so much utility, but, but if you're suicidal, I, I would say there are, there is hope. And a lot of times from those dark nights of the soul, from experiencing those really low crises of feeling low, that sometimes looking back that those are the opportunities for extreme growth and sometimes absolutely necessary for you to get to the next step. So sometimes it's just embracing that it feels shitty, but you know, reaching out, getting support and, 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 and knowing and, and trying to, to come back to that sense of knowing that, that, that there, there, there's help out there and, and that if you, if you follow the path, things, things can get better. Yeah, sometimes that the way through is to go all the way down into hell, <laughs> that, and you go underneath the obstacle. That's right. That's two of my favorite quotes: "That which you resist persists, and the only way past is through." Often, and our current framework is you're you're feeling bad. Well, let's suppress that. Let's distract you. Um, right. And- let's physically give you chemicals that will alter your ability to fully recognize and feel whatever the obstacle yeah. is. And for some people, you know, temporarily having it brought down. I mean, if you're completely agree. You're in the middle yeah. of the street, ripping your clothes off, psychotic, you know, hearing voice, don't know where you start and something else begins and you're in a lockdown hospital. Antipsychotic yeah. might have some utility temporarily to, br- a great point. to, to bring you down. But, uh, you know, that is not a long-term solution. Ultimately, I feel like true healing comes from slowly facing what has created those issues, what's creating those problems and slowly work. Basically he- healing takes time. We want an immediate quick fix in this culture and it's, it doesn't exist. And often by trying to shortcut it and go for the quick fix, then we create more problems for ourselves in the long run because you know, things have to have resistance to grow. Um, Yeah. And what I find is that it seems to be fundamentally the thing that heals is the personal subjective awareness. Mm. Like that as the awareness around whatever the thing is grows, that is the thing that actually heals you. And that to ignore basically anything that reduces awareness seems to amplify the obstacles. And anything that amplifies awareness seems to reduce the obstacles. You know? And it's like, our personal understanding is the thing that transforms it from obstacle to it's our medicine. Like I really think that our specific suffering is the thing that becomes our most potent form of healing for other people. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. And if you can face it and work through it, then ultimately you can be of, of, of service for others. I mean, I, I feel like, our body is just divinely intelligent and, and anxiety is a, it's, it's sort of an alarm bell. It's wanting you to pay attention to something. It's saying I, something needs to be addressed. Depression is Absolutely. something needs it's to be part of you talking. To you. And even something extreme as psychosis and a manic episode, I feel like if that alarm is ignored for a long time, then those, those are the ex- extreme cases. And yes, exactly. Yes. There's some, it's nature nurture. There's, there's definitely uh, trans, um, transgenerational trauma. It, 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 there's there's some DNA priming, but we can work with those a lot. And, and uh, it, the idea is to, is to work with it. I mean, that's why I always go back to the, the Buddhist uh, philosophies of, of first getting quiet and listening to the suffering, looking deeply, 
and then trying to transform it, but not, not just to, to push it away and avoid. Absolutely. What I'm curious about is what are you currently the most interested slash curious about professionally? Sure. I would say from my experience with the Santo Daimi, it has me just very interested in the ability of the combination of sound, community, ritual, and connection to heal. Because I think these medicines are, are huge, but, but largely how, how all those fundamental elements that our ancestors knew very well how that shapes the experience as, as well as the, the gut microbiome, because, you know, they've looked at, I was listening to Chris Ryan's podcast. He, he in, in, had interviewed somebody who was working with people in some of these last remaining kind of indigenous tribes that haven't, you know, been changed and altered. And their gut biome is so much more diverse and their gut biome changes with the cycles of the year, with, with what they eat. Oh, wow. Because we so much are like a, a, a compilation of the bugs <laughs> in, in our gut. And in our gut is our immune system. All our neurotransmitters come from ourself or come from our gut. So professionally, I would say, yeah, you know, these medicines I've talked about, the, the container and all that, but, but specifically just the fundamental level, like the gut biome, they, they say all diseases start in the gut. Okay. So this is fascinating to me. Um, what are some of the best heuristics and principles do you have around eating? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I have literally tried just about every diet on my healing journey because growing up I was on the, you know, the stupid American diet eating, same sad. gushers doritos cereal and uh anytime pop tart yeah, yeah anytime i had the sniffles i'd get taken to the doctor they give me an antibiotic i love the, the um bubble gum taste of amoxicillin which is sad and, <laughs> i appreciate your truth yeah so basically in college had a lot of stress and started smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee to deal with that and uh and and, and then you know then the alcohol came in and then I started getting acid reflux and rather than going to the, when I went to the doctor, rather than saying, Oh, gee, what are you eating? Well, maybe you should stop doing this, this, and this. They said, Oh, here's a proton pump inhibitor. Um, you need to take this the rest of your life. So you don't get Brett's esophagus and, uh, wind up with esophageal cancer. And it's such garbage. Such gar yeah. So I accepted that. And I'm like, Oh, cool. I can keep going along, drinking beer, smoking cigarettes and doing what, eating whatever crap I want. And then basically it caught up to me at the end of school. I was exhausted. And fortunately, I read a book called Wheat Belly that talked about yeah. how altered um, the wheat is. So it was trial and error, you know, cutting out wheat, cutting out, you know, dairy, cutting out various things and trying different diets, trying the paleo. But everyone, you know, one of the biggest things is everybody thinks they're right. And if you listen to someone long enough, you can convince somebody of anything. So I went on the vegan train for a while. I was like, maybe that's the answer. And I felt better for a while. And then I started having anxiety and insomnia and realized, no, there's something. And then when I ate some meat and some eggs, immediately things reversed. So I said, okay, well, this isn't the answer. And then I, I, I cruised along for a while. I was doing pretty good. And uh, I got really addicted to macadamia nuts in Hawaii. And uh, 
I was eating just tons of nuts. And for a while I was thinking, you know, maybe just low carbs, the answer. Um, so I, so I was doing that and I ended up with a small bowel obstruction, ended up the hospital and, and almost died. And then, well, and then now I'm realizing that I know this is a long, I'm about, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll make a point. I promise is, no, this is great. Dude. Is, uh, is really the work of Weston A. Price is really rang true to me in that ancestrally, you know, there's no one diet for everyone, but like what Chinese medicine would say, but our ancestors, they ate grains, they ate these various things, but they had these ways of preparing them. Like the Asians, they eat white rice instead of brown rice it, it, because nature wants to protect its babies. So it has these irritants in it. And if you eat too much of them, which I think a lot of people can get away with if maybe they weren't drinking amoxicillin all throughout their life. Uh, <laughs> so when it'll catch up to you, you know, it's just a matter of what, you know, you also inherit your, your part of your gut floor from your parents. So there's so many, so many variables. So it's, it's not like carbs are essentially bad. It's they have to be prepared, right? And, and a lot of times our ancestors, they were eating with the seasons. So they were maybe depending on where you're at, you were just eating a lot of meat. And then maybe you would just eat fruit when it was in season. And maybe you had some grains, but they were prepared well. So I feel like a lot of our issues are being out of sync with our indigenous ancestral knowledge and eating too many processed stuff that they've turned into a poison. So I don't think there's one size fits all. And personally, what's working with me right now, it sounds kind of extreme, but I'm, I'm almost on a carnivore diet and because I had messed my gut up so bad to where I was kind of uh, reacting to everything. And what's interesting with eating more animal-based foods is, is that their protective mechanisms are its claws, their teeth, et cetera. And what, once you get to the meat, there's no anti-nutrients. So, um, but in plants, that's not the same. Plants, it's not the same. Like they, they want to protect their babies. And if, and if you're not deactivating them properly, like, you know, some people are like, eat all raw vegetables. Well, that's cool for some, but if your gut is sensitive, it's just going to rip it to shreds. It's like eating shrapnel. Or if you're eating just tons of brown rice or even myself, you know, in the paleo community is like nuts are healthy. I'm like, oh, cool. But where in nature would you find, you know, a perfectly sea salted bag of macadamia nuts roasted <laughs> waiting for you to eat? You know, you might find a nut, you might eat a few and, and then you might, you know, you might move on. Um, so our, everything's so altered. I mean, I guess it comes back to it's called the Eagle Condor prophecy where we've just gotten so far away from indigenous ways. And I feel like we're at a time of rediscovery, relearning, and reconnecting because ultimately there is this homeostatic mechanism of, of trying to come back to wholeness. And, and all this wisdom is within the collective and, and, and we're tapping back into it. So I know, I know that's a very long answer, but that's been my journey and my understanding with nutrition. So the main thing that I extracted out of that is everyone's diet is going to be a subjective journey. And that it seems to be that the closer that you can get to what your DNA's history was for eating, very likely the better that it will be, but it's going to come through trial and error. That's it. Absolutely. And for people who are interested, Weston A. Price is the one person that you resonated with the most when it came to how to think about your diet? Yes, yes. And, and just to, uh, for the listeners, Weston A. Price is kind of fascinating as he was this dentist and he noticed that there are all these cavities and it just didn't make sense to him while he was drilling on people's teeth all the time. I mean, that this was not a normal phenomenon. And he went around and studied many indigenous tribes around the world and realized that a lot of them had straight teeth 
and perfect uh, dental uh, hygiene and, you know, no cavities, et cetera. So he was able to correlate their diet to their dental health and realize that the reason we were having all these dental issues is because we had gotten so out of sync with natural forms of eating. Um, and that a lot of it too has to, is based off the nutrient density of the food and that our ancestors, they knew how to be in harmony with nature to create that, that nutrient density and, and, and those proper preparation methods to extract the nutrients and, and be well, healthy and thriving. If you could give the audience, if you could ask my audience one thing uh, about how you would like for them to respond if they're inspired by what you have shared today, what would you like to ask them to do? Hmm. <laughs> if you feel inspired by this, you, you know, I, I would want people to ask themselves, like, you know, is this current, is this current medical paradigm working? I mean, like, like a true, honest reflection. And, um, it, you know, obviously we all know loved ones who, who are struggling with anxiety, depression, addiction, uh, who are trying different things. So if, if it's not working, then, then I would ask them to, to be open-minded about some of these alternative treatments. And, and if this resonates with, with you, I mean, consider considering helping funds and it doesn't necessarily have to be our research. Um, but, you know, helping support the community of people who are trying to bring some of these, these ancient technologies back to the forefront and, and to give things, you know, give it a chance. And, and, and also just realize that healing is, is, is just kind of going back to basics. So checking in with themselves and asking, you know, you know what, what, is, what is the true healing nature of humans? And what is that capacity? And, 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 and sort of what can I do to, to help play my part in, in facilitating this healing for myself in the future? Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. And I really appreciate what you're doing in the world. You bet. Thank you so much for having me.